Welcome back to the Souls Work Podcast, the show about uncovering our authentic selves through doing both the light work and the shadow work. I am your host, Janice Ho, and I'm here today with my fabulous guest, Sheena Yap Chan. Thank you for being here, Sheena. Hey, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here today. Um, yeah, I'm just excited. <laughs> me too. Me too. Well, I'm just wondering if you would introduce yourself for our listeners, whatever you'd like them to know about you. Yeah, for sure. So for those of you who may or may not know me, my name is Sheena Yapchan. I am a keynote speaker, consultant, author, and podcaster on building self-confidence. I have an award-winning podcast called The Tao of Self-Confidence, where I interview Asian women about their journey to self-confidence. That's now will also be an upcoming book coming out in May. So it's available for pre-order on Amazon uh, and major retail book retailers such as Barnes & Nobles, Indigo, Walmart. So it's really crazy to see all that coming to life. But for me, it's very important to elevate Asian women, especially since, you know, if you see the numbers when it comes to leadership roles, Asian women are one of the lowest, right? Yeah. And it was the sole reason why I even decided to start writing the book because it was like, why are we the lowest? You know, why, what's stopping us, right? And in our culture, there's a lot of traumas that we go through or feelings that we go through that we're not even allowed to talk about. So this is more of like, it's okay to talk about these things. It's okay to talk about intergenerational trauma, historical trauma, the model minority myth, the things Asian women face, you know, the racism that we've been recently, you know, that's recently heightened from the pandemic. Um, you know, I hear so many stories of Asian women just kind of like, trying to figure out what to do or not feeling like there's an outlet for them. And it's important to talk about these things because if not, we can't show up as our best selves, right? Sometimes we have traumas that we don't even know existed. Uh, we just put in the back burner because for so long, we've just been told to never make any noise and just do as you're told. And because of that, you know, we become the easy target for Asian hate crimes. You know, we don't get promoted in leadership roles. You know, we're just seen as the hard worker versus the leader. So there's so many things that, you know, I did my best to unpack as much as I could so that, you know, when people read it, they can realize, well, maybe there's something in my childhood that is stopping me. Right. Yeah. Or maybe I need to ask my parents. Right. Even though those are hard. Right. Because sometimes our parents and our grandparents never want to share what happened to them. But I think it's really important to talk about these things, because if not, how are you going to learn? Right. Yeah, like absolutely. I'm currently. I'm currently learning about my great grandfather and, you know, how he started his business and the traumas he had to go through. And it made me realize, like, everyone goes through challenges, right? I mean, he was a POW in World War II. Uh, he started a business out of, like, the worst times in the Philippines. And so, you know, it's just proof that no matter what situation you're in, you can go out there and make it happen. Um, but we also have to have the right mindset, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, if you want to learn karate, but you can't give give the best kick. How are you going to practice to give that kick, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Mind, body, everything, it's all connected. Yeah. Oh, thank you for all of that. And that's such <laughs> a great like summary or precursor <laughs> yeah. to like everything we're going to dive into today. So I appreciate that. And you know how much I appreciate that you are someone who is willing to talk about these hard things because I know it is very difficult for a lot of us as Asian women or Asian folks in general. And I just feel like so much less alone in knowing like I'm not the only person um, who is an Asian 
person who wants to really dive into hard things like intergenerational trauma, what have you. So we're definitely going to like go into that. But I wondered if like to start because yeah, I definitely see you as like a leader, um, if you will, in the space of elevating Asian women, being a voice for Asian women, women, like providing platforms for us and our voices to be heard. You know, I got to be on your podcast, which was amazing. And, you know, to help us build up our confidence in ourselves and in navigating a world that we don't always feel elevates us, right? So I'm curious though to know before you got into all of that and sort of your leadership role in it, like what was your own personal journey to like finding your own voice to building your own confidence as an Asian woman in this culture and to like speak out the way that you do? Like, was it a gradual process or were you just always this like vocal and badass? <laughs> definitely not as vocal, definitely not as confident. I mean, growing up in Toronto, it all stemmed from my childhood, you know, not seeing anybody in the media that looks like me. All I ever saw was blonde hair and blue eyes. So I was always ashamed of being Asian. And then growing up in an Asian household, right? You just do as you're told. And so it felt like I always needed permission from somebody, right? Um, I couldn't make a decision for the life of it. Uh, you know, I would second guess every single thing that I did. I would fear everything, right? I, I would have an analysis paralysis. So yeah, I went through it all, right? Yeah. And uh, the main reason why I started my podcast was because I was literally trying to find resources that catered to Asian women's confidence, but I just couldn't find any. There was nothing out there. And this was 2015. And so I thought maybe something was wrong with me because I'm the only one feeling this way. But then at the same time, I realized as well, we don't talk about our problems. So I started the podcast as a way to provide support and also provide better representation because we're still seen by our negative stereotypes, which is unfair. And because of that, you know, we get less promotions. We're not taken seriously in leadership roles. Sometimes we're, we're seen as like items you can order off a catalog. You know, it's unfair. And, you know, a lot of women are getting hurt because of this negative stereotype. Right. And so I wanted to showcase Asian women who've been able to overcome their obstacles, you know, overcome their fears, overcome their traumas to be who they are today. And so being able to hear these women's stories is really what helped me with my confidence, feeling like, well, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Most people feel this way. Right. Yeah. Uh, sharing their stories, you know, that gave me the confidence to keep moving forward because it's like if she can do it, then so can I. And that's what really representation is about, just showing us what's possible, right? Yes. It's even better when it's someone that looks like us, right? I mean, when you see like the movie Everything Everywhere all at once and the accolades it's been getting, like mm -hmm. you see Ki Hui Kwan, who's been getting, you know, not like awards after awards after awards. And he was on the brink of quitting acting because there was no roles for Asian, Asian Americans at the time. And if it wasn't for crazy rich Asians, then he wouldn't be here today. So this is why representation is so important. Like if there was no crazy rich Asians, he wouldn't get back into acting. If he didn't get back into acting, he wouldn't be able to break barriers, mm -hmm. right? He's been able to break so many barriers because he made a decision to go back into acting when he saw the movie Crazy Rich Asians. And, you know, just every time I see, see him speak, or, you know, have his acceptance speech. Uh, it makes me want to cry. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, cry happy tears, right? Because, like, I understand 
what it's like when there's no representation and you feel like you can't go out there and do something because you don't see somebody else that looks like you. Mm-hmm. Or there's not a lot of opportunities for Asian Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Because of maybe the model minority myth, right? They all think we're successful. So we don't need any help, When which is far from the truth. Or they think all Asians are financially successful when that is also far from the truth. So there's so many different things, mm-hmm. um, so many different factors. I mean, it, it's crazy. You know, I mean, we can go on <laughs> for hours talking about this. I know. I know. Actually, you know, what you brought up just now also made me wonder for you, because I know your focus is so much on Asian women, but like, do you also end up talking to a lot of Asian men in sort of all of this work you do around Asian representation? And do you hear from them like similar things? Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, just because I focus on one group doesn't mean other people can't relate to it. You know, I talk to women from other cultures. Um, I talk to Asian men. I talk to men from other cultures and they go through similar situations as well. Like men deal with confidence issues. Asian men deal with confidence issues as well. Uh, You know, when it comes to leadership roles, the numbers are still very low compared to other cultures. So it's not like people can't benefit from it. Of course they can, right? And for me, it's important to share our specific stories because it's through our specific stories where we can have a different perspective on things or maybe create a different solution. Because for this longest time, like every time I would do something or, you know, apply for something or talk about something, I was always told, well, my my story catered to a specific audience. Mm. So but what does that even mean, mm-hmm. right? Like, is it because I'm Asian? Is it because I don't have blonde hair and blue eyes? So it doesn't, people don't think, you know, they can like relate to what I go through right. or like, you know, it's just, there's so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to also uh, realize like, we have to go out there and advocate for ourselves, right? You know, when people complain about having more representation, it's like, well, if you really want it, it really has to start with yourself, even if you have no clue what you're doing, Mm. right? Even if you have to start from the bottom. And every little bit counts, right? Every little bit counts, especially when you see like, you know, in 2021, Asian women only represented 2.7% in corporate and leadership roles. We have a lot of work to do, right? Yeah. Um, Because- that's very low. That's very low. And then I think a report from McKinsey last year mentioned that it dropped 80%. So what are we left with? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why it's such a huge problem. This is why it's so important for us to speak up, to showcase better representation, because the Asian women who have forged their path have broken barriers, right? Have shown us what's possible. And that's that for me is a sign that we can make this happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that leadership piece is so important because I did internalize all of those same stereotypes and, you know, seeing the lack of uh, representation in education and workplaces and things like that in the wellness space, right, really did leave me with a sense of like, I don't belong at the top, quote unquote, at the top, right? And when I really think about who I am authentically, I am someone who wants to say some shit, you know, I am someone who wants to put myself out there and who has an opinion and a perspective. So I think having unlearned a lot of these things that were ingrained in me that were really not aligned with who I was has really helped to shift some of that in both of my mind and in my behaviors and just how I feel about it. But that's definitely been a process. And within that, it's like you're saying, like seeing actually, you know, visually seeing people who look like me in those roles are part of what has helped me build my own confidence as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're one of those people. So (laughs) 
Thank you. <laughs> so I really want to hear more about your new book. Um, and I know you do talk about intergenerational trauma and historical trauma as part of that. And, you know, again, I just want to say that I'm so grateful to you that you're willing to have this specific conversation with me and putting it out in the book, um, because I've done so much of my own personal work around intergenerational trauma. Like I've researched so much about my family history I have grieved like so many tears, not not just for myself and the pain that comes up for me, but for the people before me, the generations before me who I felt like didn't have that support or opportunity to grieve. And it has helped me to better understand my parents at like such a deeper level, the kind of relational dynamics we had and still have to understand more about myself and why I am the way that I am and to have like this very deep sense of compassion for them that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't done that really, really deep exploration and healing. But I know that it can be a, a really hard conversation to have because there can be a lot of shame around like, am I like airing my family's dirty laundry or like that kind of like sense? So yeah, I, I'm just curious, like one, if you can share more about your book as it relates to intergenerational and historical trauma, and then, you know, what has been like some of your own personal journey in working through those things? And have you also experienced the shame or those barriers in taking that, that exploration? Oh yeah. I mean, of course, you know, when you grew up in an Asian household, you've been taught to do one way, right. Of living, but your whole life. And so even when I was approached to write this book, like I still was dealing with major imposter syndrome thinking like, can I even write this book? Like, who am I to advise people on this? Right. Um, so, you know, I share some of the experiences I go through, even some of the traumas I've been um, and understanding my family too. Right. I mean, our family knows what they only know. So sometimes we have to understand like that's all they know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can accept it. We can try to change it. But the older they get, you know, the harder it is to change their ways. And so sometimes we just have to respect it. And I know that's not probably the answer most people want to hear. But at the same time, you know, our parents, our ancestors, they do it out of love. They probably thought that was the best thing they could do. Right. Um, like I just found out, you know, my grand great grandmother, you know, her feet was binded back. In, and that was huge in China. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it showed a status. It showed that, you know, it was a, a standard of beauty. And we have to realize, well, why, why was that even considered, you know, a standard of beauty, right? Because, uh, you know, back then women with smaller feet were considered beautiful. I mean, there's lots of things to unpack for sure. Even just the traditions that we do, we never question about it, right? It's like, why are we doing this, right? Like, what's the main reason? And of course, you know, when you ask, the answer is like, because we do it, right? Not <laughs> with no underlying reason. And for me, I just want to know, right? Like, are we doing it for the sake of tradition or is this tradition really affecting women, right? Because there's a lot of traditions that benefit men over women. And that's just the hard truth. Um, and sometimes we've got to question the things that we do, right? Now that, you know, we are more aware, we understand a little bit more, we have to like question some things because if we don't, then we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And yeah, it's not easy sometimes to talk about these things, right? Like I come from a huge Asian family. My grandmother has 12 siblings. You know, mm -hmm. if we, if you check out like our Christmas family photo last year, it was, there was like at least 200 members and that's wow. not even all of it. Yeah. Wow. And so um, sometimes you just got to push through because not everyone's going to understand what you do, especially your parents. Uh, but when you're committed and they see like the results, you know, they'll understand. And it's not that they're not for it. It's just sometimes they don't understand it. 
right? Sometimes, you know, for them, success is working a job from nine to five until you're 60. I couldn't see myself doing that. I would literally like sit in my cubicle and be like, I can't do this. Like, (laughs) you know, and I'm not saying it's, you know, having a job is bad because if you love your job, that's great. I've met people who even love working at the dollar store, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's amazing, right? You should love what you do, whether it's being, you know, a cashier at McDonald's or owning your own business. But if you're unhappy, then we got to do something differently, Mm. right? And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of risk. uh, It takes a lot of, you know, overcoming all your fears and anxiety, right? But once you get to the other side of that, it's magical. It's amazing. If I didn't go through, you know, the things I went through, I wouldn't be here today, right? Mm. Going through so much rejection, um, you know, not feeling good enough, thinking, you know, going through imposter syndrome, you know, trying to overcome my fears. Like those things are not easy or even like, leaving a job to do something on your own. That's very, that's a courageous thing to do. And I think we forget to honor that, right? Because not everyone can do that, right? Um, Especially when you've been taught to always have a stable, comfortable life. When in reality, we have to learn to embrace the uncertainty in life, right? I think the pandemic was a big proof of that. Like, you know, we can push through something that we had no idea what was going to happen. So yeah, I kind of maybe could have went off topic, but I mean, the book- Mm-hmm. The book is really like a guide to kind of like figure out what are some of the things that are holding you back, how you can heal through it and build on it, right? Like having self-love, building confidence, but we have to get to the root of the problem and find ways to heal it. I'm not a licensed mental health therapist. You know, I always say go to a licensed <laughs> mental health therapist if you have to, but being able to interview so many women and just the life experiences I've been through, I realize we have so much to work on, right? Yeah. We have so much to deal with. You know, we have so much to like just heal as a community as well, because I mean, look at what's happening with our community. You know, elderly every single day is getting attacked for no apparent reason. Women are are getting attacked, you know, just because of the color of her skin or the cultural background we're in, you know, and when it comes to DEI efforts, most of the time Asians are not considered people of color, mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. Um, which is really sad because it's like, you know, we are in that, but they don't include us in that because of the model minority myth. So there's so many things yeah. um, that I mentioned in the book, just kind of like you know, it just, we need to be aware of these things. We need people to be aware this is what we go through so that we can find better solutions. We can understand each other. And actually it's funny because I have a lot of licensed mental health therapists, like say, oh, I need to order this book for my clients because <laughs> uh, this can really help them. Right. Yeah. Uh, just kind of talk about the the hard topics like mental health, the taboos that we go through, even just the history that each Asian country goes through. Right. Like, you know, ch- in China, you're like pressured to get married. In India, you know, child marriage is still prevalent, arranged marriages. Uh, in Japan, you know, like women are treated unfairly. I mean, you know, all these things still happen today and we need to find ways to solve those problems, right? But if we're not aware of it, then how can we solve them um, if we don't talk about the hard stuff, right? The mm. things that your Asian parents don't tell you <laughs> or yeah. tell you not to say. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a lot of unpacking in that book, but I think that's what's necessary if you want to be a leader. We need to unpack a lot of things before we can move forward. Because if you know, if not, how can you be the leader that you're meant to be if you're still, if something is still holding you back mm. and you're not even aware of it, right? And it's not even just your trauma. You might be carrying the trauma of your ancestors, right? And, you know, they say intergen- intergenerational trauma goes four generations deep. 
But I personally think for Asian women, it goes way deeper. Yeah. <laughs> Would not be surprised. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like so much comes up for me in, in what you just shared. One, for sure, this piece about like the holding back, like, and what is, what are like the really deep underlying causes of why we have these blocks, for example, to moving forward, to being, you know, in our leadership, in our confidence. And I think a lot of times, and I've said this before on the podcast, where I think a lot of times we want to jump into this new us that we want to see, like we want to just somehow manifest this like confident person that we like envision ourselves. And we kind of like know that we should be able to be. But sometimes I think this part about, but what is the actual thing that's like holding us back that's been in place for probably our entire lives? that tell us that we can't do that, that there is actually a protective mechanism there. Like it's to, you know, survival, like all the things that do go back generations as to why our people had to take on these like ways of making ourselves small and silent and not rocking the boat or not being too much or taking up too much space. Like so much of that has been protective and for our survival is just that over time, of course, it has these impacts of where maybe we don't feel we can be authentically ourselves and really show up and take space in the room. But I think like you're so right in that, like at least that's been my experience is that when I can go deep into what are those like underlying blocks that have been very protective, but are no longer serving me really work through that, heal that and respect it and have compassion for it. Like that's been the thing that then as that subsides, I just organically become more confident. Like it's not something I'm pushing myself to be or try to become. It just sort of happens. And also with practice of like putting myself out there, doing my podcast, put my voice out there. Like, yes, there are things that I do to practice this new muscle of like showing up and all of that. But I think that this other piece often gets bypassed. So I'm so glad that you talk about that in your book. And yeah, I'm with you there 100%. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to also talk about, you know, our experiences as Asian women living in Canada, you've already alluded to this a bit, you know, we're both in Toronto. And, you know, we talked about this a bit on our call where it's interesting here, especially in Toronto, where there is a lot of like cultural diversity. And we tend to, I think, think about it as like, oh, we're so progressive. And we're like, so accepting of all cultures and whatnot. But there is still racism here. Oh, there yeah. is still <laughs> oh, yeah. discrimination. There's, there's discrimination. And I think in Canada, you know, there's a thing is like, I call it polite racism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy when people think that racism doesn't happen in Canada. I just like, sometimes I just want to roll my eyes and be like, are you crazy? I mean, Toronto and Vancouver has the highest Asian population and Vancouver has you know, the higher per capita when it comes to Asian hate attacks versus America. And so people need to realize like it also happens here, right? Yes, we are a very multicultural city. I love the fact that Toronto is very multicultural. Like you can literally get any cuisine from the world, which I think is amazing. Of course, like as Asians, we love to connect through food. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, there's still so much we have to work on. Like even just going to a networking event, you know, the amount of women of color that go is like, it's like just a fraction, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, even last year I was on Facebook and someone had a sponsored f- pose for a women's event. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. I, maybe I'd like to go and see what it's about. 
But when you see the speaker lineup, you know, you mm-hmm. see like nine Caucasian women and like one African-American woman. And then it's like, it's a turnoff. It's like, totally. where's where's the diversity, right? I mean, one person of color cannot represent all of women of color, right? It has to be, you know, at least equally distributed. So, and that only happened last year. And so seeing that, it just made me like sick to my stomach because it's like 2022 and that's what we're going through. And even companies, right? They keep saying they're diverse or diverse. Yes, they're, they're diverse in lower level employment. But what about the upper level? What does that look like? Right. Um, Diversity has to go all across. Right. On all all levels of employment. Uh, And even even then, like I think in the States, I think I don't quote me on this, but I think you just need to be like five percent diverse to be considered a diverse company. And, you know, that's that's crazy because 40 percent of America is people of color and it's going to overtake it. So (laughs) there's just so many different things. And this is why it's so important to speak up, to talk about, to call out those things sometimes. Right. Because it's like, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you really doing? You know, is it just are you doing it to look good? Is it just smoke and mirrors or are you really for it? Are you really creating the change you want to see? Because there's so many amazing, talented people out there, you know, people of color, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, there's so much talent out there, but sometimes they see our faces, they see we have smaller eyes and then, you know, we get disregarded, right? Mm-hmm. Because of it. And I've seen women who lost business just because they found out they weren't Caucasian. And it's unfortunate that that still happens mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And yeah, it is crazy to me how there are so many people in Canada or Toronto who think that this doesn't exist. Because for me, I see it everywhere, you know, just like you're saying about like the kinds of people like I I when I worked in my first career as a researcher in the criminal justice field, I knew that every time I walked into a board meeting in whichever place I was working in, it would just be a sea of like white faces and maybe that token, you know, one or two people of color and, you know, the people in you know, who are teaching in my schools and the people who did have like executive leadership roles in the workplace. It's like, I just knew, I I knew before I even stepped foot, like what, what would happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about it in terms of like the neighborhoods in Toronto and who are still really in the more like quote unquote, like rich neighborhoods or, you know, upper class, whatever you want to call it. Like I see the divisions everywhere and it's, it can feel kind of like crazy making or gaslighting when people are like, oh, but it's Toronto. And it's like, you know, so multicultural. And I'm like, that doesn't mean that it's like equal or fair. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, something I was thinking about um, in terms of like this thing about assimilation, because that is sort of our common, like cultural way of being here, right? Like whether you're an immigrant who comes here or maybe you're born here like me, but you're not part of the dominant culture. And just this thing of like assimilating or like moving toward dominant culture, which is white dominant culture. And, you know, I think about the ways that, you know, like you were saying, when we grow up and we see what the standard of like beauty is or what it means to be successful or like all of these things. And now that I've really consciously explored some of this, that I can see all of these different ways that I was trying to like move towards being closer to that center of power and privilege, the ways that I gave up parts of myself and sort of like detached from my own culture. And already that was already hard because my parents had to flee their homeland 
and cut off parts of their, themselves because of war, threat of war, whatnot, and coming here. And then how that's even more exacerbated for me. And so I almost feel like it's it's contributed to this like abandonment wound that I have where there's like almost this thing that this part of me that is missing. And I'm curious to know if that's been a part of your experience, if you've, you have felt like you've had to sort of exile parts of yourself in perhaps assimilating here or trying to like just make it in this oh, culture. Yeah, for, for sure. Right. Like, especially if you work in a, in a corporate setting, right? Like, I mean, you have to show up a certain way or else they don't take you seriously. Um, and it, especially as an Asian woman, I mean, you know, I'm glad that, you know, they say Asian don't raisin, but that can also be a curse for us because it's like they don't take us seriously or we get mistaken for like the secretary or the help, um, not realizing like, you know, I'm actually the lawyer or the boss or the manager. And, you know, back then it's like I always used to think that I could only reach a certain cap in my career because I'm Asian. So I never I never did anything outside of that. And even if I tried, someone told me, well, as a woman, you make more than enough. So why should you even bother? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I believed that person, right? Because at that time, my confidence was in, was low, right? Because I didn't feel I was good enough. I didn't have, you know, I, I wasn't worthy. I always, you know, was, I was always worried about what others thought of me. And so I never wanted to rock the boat as well and just assimilated to Western culture, or whatever Western culture is or dominant culture. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of us try to do that. Right. And then they've also forced it on people like, you know, what happened with the residential schools? Like it's it's like appalling. Right. Yeah. Um, when you hear news that like 200 identified bodies were found in one school and then another school was, you know, you find another like 50 un unidentified bodies and what they went through through those schools to just so that they could feel more accepted, even though indigenous people, you know, came to America and Canada first. Right. Mm -hmm. um, like it's crazy. I remember watching this movie on Netflix. I think it's called Dark Horse, but it's talking about, um, you know, an indigenous man's um, life in the residential school and how it really affected him in his later life. Because um, one of the things he was good at was playing hockey, but because he was so traumatized by what happened to him in the residential schools, he just went through a different path. Mm -hmm. Right. He never was able to heal from his trauma and, you know, just went through this bad path. And then, of course, when you're like when you're giving a given like a chance to play hockey and you're like the token indigenous person out of everyone, you're going to go through racism. You're going to mm -hmm. go through all kinds of harassment. And so if you're not mentally prepared to handle that, you're going to quit. Right. Because mm -hmm. who wants to go through that? And, you know, most women in leadership roles quit. Because they can't take that pressure. It's like, yes, we've made it to the top, but it's not even, that's not, that's nothing, right? Like it's great, but like, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, imagine being like the only Asian women female leader, and then you still have to go through all kinds of crap, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've spoken to lawyers who made partner and still get harassed, right? Or not being taken seriously or get backhanded compliments like, oh, for an Asian woman, you know, this is pretty good. It's like, what does that even mean? Right. Right. <laughs> I don't go up to people like for a Caucasian man, you did well. Like who says that? Right. Yeah. So why, why is it because we're Asian? It's like, it's a, it's a disability or it's like, mm -hmm. it's treated that way when, you know, there's so many talented women out there who can create change, uh, change for the better. Like, you know, if we had more women leaders out there, I'm like, I think the world would be a way better place. We wouldn't have as much wars because most of these wars are all ego trips when you think about it. And as women, women mostly would hash it out until mm. they find a solution, right? Mm. Most most of the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, something just came up for me. <laughs> 
when you were sharing, oh, I kind of just lost it right now. But one thing I was curious about, as you were saying that, yeah, there are all these ways that that you and others have had to do certain things to assimilate. Like, I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing, like what some of those things look like for you personally. Yeah. I mean, when in my twenties, I dyed my hair blonde, you know, (laughs) to feel Mm -hmm. more accepted. And, but a part of me knew it wasn't me. Like I would look in the mirror. It's like, that's not me. Like I won't have, I don't have blonde hair. Right. So I actually decided to uh, color it back to my original hair color. And that was the first time I really said, yeah, this is me. I'm Asian. And I just started embracing my culture. And it's funny because when I say that, a lot of people are like, that was my moment too. <laughs> uh, even, even even being ashamed of like the foods you you brought to school, right? It's that, like, mm-hmm. like bringing noodles and they're like, ew, are you eating worms? And it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's noodles. And you know, I love, I love Asian food. Like, I don't care. Uh, there's lots of great cuisines out there, but nothing like for me, nothing beats Asian food. It's like mm-hmm. the best comfort food ever. Yes. Even little things like that. Right. Or, you know, you go on a date with a guy who's not Asian and they're just like, I've been to China once. And I'm like, great. I've never been to China. So I don't know. <laughs> you know, just like little things like that, you know, like just mm-hmm. the monoliths, the stereotypes, you know, as Asians were always grouped as like one thing when there's when there's so much diversity within the Asian population. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm also thinking about how I did the code switching thing when I was entering, especially like my master's or undergraduate program where it's like, I used to talk in a lot of slang and because of just who I grew up around and whatnot. And it was like, I, I learned very quickly what it meant to sound like quote unquote professional and, you know, put on the academic voice and like that code switching because I knew what I needed to do in order to be more palatable to those who were in positions of power and to be more like, again, moving towards that center of power and privilege. And what it, what does it look like that standard that's been set of how you should speak to be taken seriously, right? And how you should dress, like the ways that I gave up sort of my authentic way of dressing to try and fit in more and blend in more and not stand out. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things there and definitely like seeing just this one standard of beauty in TV shows and Barbie dolls and like things like that growing up where I felt this like envy and this wanting, longing to look like that and not like me. And I I just find that so devastating that that is what we are taught um, at such a deep unconscious level. And now it's like, shit, got to do all the work of unlearning (laughs) that. Um, But yeah, I'm just like really sitting with all of that as you're sharing. Yeah. And then also too, like hearing you talk about this idea of like certain Asian women might get into, you know, leadership roles, like the few but there is this like environment that doesn't enable them to like thrive in it and to feel welcome in it. And, you know, so there's that piece because I think sometimes the narrative is like, oh, well, everybody has a fair shot, right? You just have no. to work hard. No, <laughs> they but don't. Then, no, Honestly, they no, don't. No, um, just getting that position is great, but that's only the beginning. Uh, there's still a lot of pushback and challenges that people don't realize. And if you're not mentally prepared for it, I mean, it, it can take a toll on you, right? Yeah. It's it's hard. It's tough. And yeah, like, I think it's just, we need more stories to know, like, yeah, we made it, but it's not always, you know, it's not always icing on the cake. There's still so much work we have to do right. um, to just be even taken seriously, right? We have to work 
a hundred times, a thousand times more to prove our worth, unfortunately. But if no one does it, who else will? Right. Right. So hopefully for me, the book is a starting conversation to that, you know, just something that people need a wake up call from. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) And I was going to say, like, I feel like the work you're doing, whether it's the book or, you know, like the, the meetups, like where you get, you know, I'm always seeing on your social media where like you're bringing Asian women together and having that support where it's not just us dealing with this on our own or feeling alone in it because it is challenging, um, I think is such a huge part of that process. So I'm curious to know if, you know, where we've talked about sort of like ways that we've maybe had to cut off parts of our cultural roots, if we want to call it that, are there ways that you've been able to like preserve that or come back to that, whatever that means for you and like what sort of helped you in that process or what's been protective for you? Um, and being able to kind of connect with your culture. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, there's certain traditions that I do follow because it makes sense for me. So I don't say like, don't follow all tradition, like don't follow all traditions. You, you got to figure out what makes sense. Sometimes we've got to question some of the traditions if it helps us or hurts us, right? right? So for those of you who may not know me, you know, red is my color. Um, and red in Chinese culture is a happy color. It's a lucky color, right? When Chinese New Year comes, you get the lucky red envelope. So it also signifies abundance and wealth. And so I use that not only because I like the color, but it also is an homage to, to my culture, right? Like for me, red represents confidence and courage. And then at the same time, it's also a happy color in Chinese culture, right? We wear it for birthdays, when it's Chinese New Year or any special occasion, we get the lucky red envelope. So there are certain things that I do follow that make sense, right? And I think we just have to figure out what works for us because everyone's different. Uh, What may work for me might not work for you, right? Maybe your color isn't right. Maybe your color is yellow. And then we figure out why, right? (laughs) I mean, um, the beauty of when it comes to building your confidence and finding yourself is you get to choose what works for you, right? And I, I know it's sometimes easier said than done because for so long you were just like given one one route to like follow the path. But I mean, now there's just with the with the internet and social media and like, you know, there's just so many different things you could do, right? So many things. As long as you're not hurting anyone, you know, <laughs> there's just so many different things you can do. Um, totally. And there's so many things you can learn and figure out what would what will work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still finding my way and I find it hard because of all of the separation for me between me and Korean culture. But definitely food is something where I feel is like a little bit of an easier place to start because like you said, like, how can you not feel connected with food? Um, So yeah, that's kind of been part of my like very, very slow journey. But I really appreciate you saying that because sometimes I can feel almost like this pressure of like having to do all the things or like, what does it mean to be Korean and connected with Korean culture? And, you know, I think just your reminder is really helpful in what is the right thing for me and what is the right thing for me at this given time, given that I've been so like disconnected and maybe that's just a little baby step right now. And later on my capacity or interest or community even, you know, will grow and it'll be something else. So I just yeah really appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. So I feel like I really just have one last question, but it's a big one, which is that, you know, when I think about the impacts of really huge things like intergenerational trauma, racial trauma, historical trauma, 
And I think about the ways we tend to approach healing in this Western culture. And I'm training to become a therapist. So, you know, nice. hey, I am. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I acknowledge that I'm training within like a sort of Western therapy framework. And that yeah. tends to be very individualized, right? But for things that are this big, that often have like you know, sometimes centuries of like emotional charge behind them. I'm really learning how important it is to heal in community, heal with others. And, you know, I think in the individualized approach, sometimes things like spirituality, even or connection with our ancestors, or, you know, maybe some certain cultural elements are taken out of the equation. So I guess I've just been thinking a lot about that piece of what do I need in terms of support? And maybe it's more communal support of some kind that is beyond just me as the individual taking it all on. And I'm curious yeah. to know if for you, you've experienced that support or if that's something that's important to you. In support, kind of, yes. Yeah. Support, support is very important, right? I mean, for so long, we've been pressured to, we've been conditioned to not ask for help because it's shameful. It's considered a weakness. We're asking for a handout, but we can't do everything ourselves. That's just the hard truth, right? I wouldn't be here today without the help of people supporting me, listening to my podcast, buying books, right? I mean, for me, I don't even believe in self-made because it takes a community to get to where you are today. And it's important to know where you come from, you know, where it's humble beginnings or whatever that may be. Like you have to understand that support can just make things better. Mm -hmm. Like talking to a licensed mental health therapist, creating platforms to help you heal. Like I have a friend who is also a licensed, um, licensed therapist and she started a platform utilizing K-dramas to promote mental health. Mm. And so by doing that, she's not only healing, you know, her Korean community, She's actually healing a lot of people in different countries because when the pandemic happened or the lockdowns, K-dramas and K-pop just was a big hit, right? Mm -hmm. And it's actually produced such a diverse community where you see people in Brazil trying to learn Korean or you see people in Africa watching Goblin like 27 times. I'm just <laughs> like, this is amazing. And so support is needed. You need to have help. It's okay to ask for help. And I, I keep saying that in my book. I keep saying, it's okay to ask for help. Go ask for help, right? Talk to a mental health therapist if you have to. Join a women's group. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, listen to podcasts, read books, um, whatever that support may look like for you because we can't do everything ourselves. I mean, I was stubborn too. I tried to do everything myself and it just delayed me. I ended up feeling like the worst person in the world. I would just keep beating myself down and it was just like a rabbit hole. And mm -hmm. I don't want that to happen to anyone else who's listening to this because you're here for a reason. You're listening to this for a reason. It's because you want support. You want help. You want to find different ways to heal. And so I'm a huge advocate to ask for help to because I know I can't do it all. I'm just one person. How can I figure everything out, right? I'm not good at everything, right? I'll leave it to other people who are who have more expertise. And why would I want to do things alone, right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, it's better to be in a community where you feel supported. When days are tough, they become your cheerleaders because mm -hmm. we all go through ruts. We all go through bad times. And then it's having these support systems that help us, you know, get back on our feet when times are tough. So for me, support is important. It's very important. And it's time we need to normalize it versus trying to say, oh, it's a weakness. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Because uh, that's one way of building your confidence is asking for support, you know, having someone who can help you along the way, right? Because yes. we also have a lot of blind spots. And of course, we can't see it. We need a second pair of eyes or a third pair of eyes to see those blind spots so we can correct it and move forward.
Mm, I love that. Yes. That times 10. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I I feel like people listening, like some people listening might be like, what is this platform with the K-drama stuff? Yeah, it's it's called Nuna's Nunchi. So you can check it out on Instagram. Um, It's really great. Her name, uh, my friend's name is Jeannie Chang. She's phenomenal. I mean, um, she's created such an amazing platform, healing the world through mental health, through K-dramas. It's uh, it's amazing. Mm. That's all I can say. (laughs) Amazing. I'm going to check it out for sure. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to share before we wrap up? I know we talked about a lot, but yeah, I think we've covered most of it. So, (laughs) well, thank you so, so much again for being here. Um, I'd love for you to share where people can connect with you and find you. Yeah, for sure. So you can check out my websites, shinayabchan.com or the the selfconfidence.com, which is my podcast. Um, you can, you know, pre-order a copy of my upcoming book, The Tale of Self-Confidence on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, on, and also, uh, Indigo, if you're in Canada, uh, would love your support on that. And if you forget anything that I mentioned, you can just Google my name, Sheena Yapchan, because I'm literally the only Sheena Yapchan ever <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> and we'll put all the links in the show notes too, for sure. Yeah. Thank you again. I thank really you. appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Awesome.